How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked On NBA, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, and founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. Fun show coming up if you're an NBA fan, a history of NBA fan, or if you just like big personalities. Roland Lazenby joining us, the author of Showboat about Kobe Bryant. He also wrote The Life on Michael Jordan. He also wrote a book on Phil Jackson. And then for jazz fans, a little treat for you at the very end of the podcast on a little book he wrote about Stockton and Malone. So it's a fun show today with Roland Lazenby. I hope you are ready for it. It should be a good conversation about Kobe and Jordan and personalities and moments and what makes a star and who these guys are and all of that. So, and as you may know, Locked On NBA is part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We have a daily podcast for every NBA team. So your favorite team, have you found it yet? If you're a Kobe fan, Locked On Lakers, Harrison and Anthony do a great job every single day, Monday through Friday, producing a 15 to 25 minute podcast for you on your team. Nobody gives you better information than Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. We also have one for every NFL show as well. Before we get to rolling, welcome in, in. Let me thank our sponsor, and we welcome Indochino, the suit company to Locked on NBA. So glad to have them aboard. They are really making it easy for you to get world-class, fabulous suits, custom fit at incredible prices. In fact, any premium Indochino suit is just $389 at Indochino.com when you enter the promo code LOCKED. And for today's program, it's Athletes Collective. Athletes Collective is a sportswear company that offers premium athletic gear at an affordable price. How? No logos. That's right. The same high-quality technical fabrics, 40 to 50% less, no logo. So it's a great pre-shrunk. You can wash it, dry them as many times as you want. They never lose their ability and their original shape. And all. Like I'm wearing one right now. I just finished working out in the gym here. In Orlando, I'm wearing my Athletes Collective. I'm wearing the Fulkerson V-Net. That's the T-shirt that I liked uh, the best. You can check it out. They also have the regular crew neck shirts. The one I'm wearing, just $19. $19 for an athletic shirt. High quality as anything else. You're just missing the logo. And did I really care if Matt Harpering and Ron Boone saw me the logo on today when I was in the gym? No, I did not. The Fulkerson Laser Blue uh, crew neck is on sale for just $15. Also good shorts as well. Check it out, athletescollective.com. Use the promo code LOCKED and you get 15% off your first purchase. Appreciate if you can support our sponsors. We get these shows to you for free and they are nice enough to support them so they keep coming out and then you get the opportunity to uh, support them. Locked on NBA also had the coach on. If you've missed the coach, we have coaches, we have scouts, we have front office people who come on the show and they do it anonymously uh, and talk about what's going on in the league. Our previous episode was the coach. All right, this is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Our guest today is an NBA historian, an NBA junkie, an NBA fan, Roland Lazenby, the author of Showboat on Kobe Bryant. You can get it on Amazon, on your Kindle, wherever it is, on your iPad, however you want to do it. And Roland has written a bunch of really fun NBA books that kind of kind of past the history of time. So it was Michael Jordan's The Life, Mind Games with Phil Jackson, and Showboat. We'll dig into all of those now with our guest, and we welcome Roland Lazenby onto the program. Well, Roland, I, I must say, as I read this, um, I do like the title Showboat, but I think I might have titled it Doubtless. 
because, and I have a bunch of notes here. I can run through four, five, six, seven times in Kobe's career where he's just incredibly doubtless about everything that's going on. I don't know if that's a word, doubtless, but that seems to be how I would summarize Kobe. Uh, I agree. George Mumford, the uh, the guy who was hired, the psychologist who was hired to work with Kobe with the Lakers, and told me Kobe didn't have an ability to consider any contrary view, that anything that was opposed to his self-belief was just not within the realm of possibility. And did this help him or hurt him? Uh, both, of course. Uh, it it um, was the essence of all of his drive, uh, also the essence of all of his alienation from everyone. But in the end, considering that he wanted to be the greatest, I think that he had to be on that A train that few other people get to ride, you know, where he's just zooming off to of what he sees out there. It's an interesting one because, and we'll go back through these moments, in a, in a, but as he wrapped up his career, uh, and, and without being too negative, and obviously those last few years were negative, but it does leave me that the legacy of LeBron's career is going to be people wanting to play with him. The legacy of... Kobe's career is going to be at some point that people didn't want to play with him. The legacy of Duncan's career is going to be that he left the franchise in better shape than it was when he got it. And I'm not sure the same can be said for Kobe. So it's interesting that there is this level. There, I don't know if it's, what's the word, Roland? Is it there's a tarnish? There's a destruction? Something about that personality led him to some. I don't know. Some I think some negative parts of his legacy that are that are fairly lasting. He did, and I, you know, I like to write about intensely competitive people. I do have to say, before I go on, Kobe played a key role in the Lakers winning five championships. And so, yeah, you have to you 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 have to back off a little bit because he his singular drive and uh, a maniacal approach to the game is. Um, is probably a, a key role in a lot of that. There may have been some stuff they left on the table because of him, though. And I think that certainly is part of what haunts all of them, all of the Lakers. But I will say, going back to George Mumford again, he, he worked with Jordan. Phil Jackson brought him in to work with Jordan in Chicago. And, of course, with Kobe in L.A. And George Mumford said, you know, um, my main job was to teach these two guys compassion for their teammates because they were so driven, so focused, had so much ability. A lot of times the, the hardest spot on the floor was being their teammate. And, you know, with when you talk about LeBron, there, there are people who have alleged deficiencies of his in a variety of fronts. But I don't think anyone will ever have to teach him compassion. He is uh, he, he's an inheritor of the game for Magic Johnson, I think. Oh, that's a wonderful parallel. I mean, you've been around so much of this role. And that's a, elaborate on that a little bit. It's not where we are heading and not what the book Showboat's about, but elaborate on that. That's an interesting parallel that well, Jor- Jordan to Kobe, Magic to LeBron. I wrote my first book on the Lakers, and it came out in 93, and it was a book appropriately titled The Lakers, and it was about Magic trying to come back from his HIV. Plus, it was about the history of the Lakers. And a few months after it came out, I got this wonderful letter from this uh, coach in China who said he was having so much trouble because he wanted all of his players to learn the game and to see the game like Magic. But Jordan, by then, had his grip on the game, and all his players wanted to do was put their heads down and head to the basket. And he was really frustrated. So it was, uh, I'll never forget that letter. Well, it's interesting that you, the, the compassion element to this, because I had this incredible career experience where, uh, and this will relate to your Jordan book, where, I don't know if you remember, this is probably 97, and, and there were these puzzles that were very popular at the time that were like intertwined puzzles. They weren't like it was jigsaw puzzles. And right. you, you had to work to get them undone. And Co- uh, Jordan had gone to the local mall in Utah, and he'd actually gotten two of every single one of them because he had to. Com- he wouldn't want to do it. He wanted to compete with someone. Well, it turns out that Scottie Pippen was better at these puzzles 
than Jordan was. And here's this game before Utah and and uh, Chicago in the kind of the apex of that matchup, and they're doing these in the locker room before the game. And Scotty wins the first few times, and then says to us, "Well, I have to lose, or he'll never stop." And then he loses, and Jordan gets up and kind of like gets in his face, like I always kick your ass, I always beat. Like it was ridiculous. Like Scotty had won the first four, but like Jordan won the last one. That's all that mattered. Is Kobe? Why keep playing ping pong with uh, with the late Lacey Banks? Right. He and Lacey had titanic ping pong matches, and Jordan finally got to where he beat him, and that was just, uh, I mean, an unbearable trash talk followed. And, does, so. and, are the, and now, is Kobe's similar in that same way that he had this direct shot at people, or was it just that Kobe was almost so insular because he was so driven? Um, Kobe was so aloof. He was in the freezer. And uh, it started probably because he spent his formative years in Italy playing for an older club team, but he was by far the best player. And, you know, I was coaching last year, and I had a, like, a, the tallest player in the league was my point guard. And we had a, a, a weak roster, but he was, this kid was brilliant. And there were nights sometimes where it was almost tough for him to pass. And that was like Kobe in Italy. And his teammates would get furious with him, and they'd have to take Kobe out of the game. And he's just always been a part. Uh, his AAU coach told me that he had to have nine players. He couldn't carry ten because Kobe wouldn't come out of the games. And he would be so driven and pushing so hard. The only way they could get him to calm down is Joe, his father, Jelly Bean. They have to start talking to him in Italian to get him to calm down. And so Why? I mean, why? What was, is he born, did something happen? What's your thought on why? Well, well, it's always the mothers. Jerry West, I'll never forget, I was starting that biography for ESPN, and I find this photo of Jerry West and his mother and father and Fred Schaus, the coach at West Virginia University. And Jerry's just won the uh, state championship for West Virginia huge thing in his life. And it's National Signing Day, and he's signing with West Virginia. And the four of them are sitting there, and Jerry and his mother, their eyes are exactly alike, and they're burning into the camera like they're absolutely uh, miserable, and they want to take a bite out of somebody. And uh, Jordan had this fiery, fiery mother who, who uh, the kingmaker in the shoe business told me, Probably the single most impressive person he's ever met. And Kobe's mother is very reclusive, very withdrawn. But like Mo Howard, who played at Maryland and is really close with Jelly Bean and helped me tell this whole story, he said, Pam is the killer. She is a perfectionist. And Tex Winter would always explain to me these great, great competitive personalities are perfectionists to the core and they they each have their own different variety of perfectionism but it drives the machine and it almost always from what i've seen come from the mother so if we go back to doubtless the first time he's doubtless is the idea of going pro it was still, as has been well documented with some other uh, books, Jonathan Abrams did a great job last year. Uh, I mean, that, that was really a, you know, Kevin Garnett and Kobe's legacy is this going pro. But he see, you mentioned one thing about the idea of maybe Duke and maybe LaSalle with his dad. What's your thought on whether he was really doubtless then? Well, I, you know, Kobe also is a fabulist, and he retells all the tales. And I encountered no end of people who said, yeah, Kobe said he beat my AU team all the time, BS, or Kobe said this. And they all get annoyed with him because he, he corrects things. But Kobe was a 17-year-old kid. There is no question. Sonny Vaccaro spent hours with me coming clean on this whole thing. And Kobe Bryant was the instrument. He was a teenager that Kobe was looking, that Sonny Vaccaro was looking for. He is the instrument of Sonny Vaccaro's revenge 
against Nike and the NCAA. And Nike had fired Sonny Vaccaro in 1991 after he had made them billions. And then the NCAA had run a really rough investigation of Jerry Tarkanian that had sort of rolled over Vaccaro and really infuriated him. And he was looking. He had moved to Adidas. He and Peter Moore, who was the designer for Air Jordan, were looking for the next Jordan. And they couldn't find anybody. Now, Kobe was of the mindset where he would do it. He would turn pro. And Sonny Vaccaro, through an AAU coach from New York, Gary Charles, they worked. Oh, oh, it was, as Vaccaro said, it was the most clandestine thing he'd ever done, signing Kobe Bryant out of high school. And they paid Kobe, guaranteed him millions to turn pro. And the reason Kobe turned pro is that his parents were broke. And Sonny Vaccaro guaranteed the family 300000 on the side. And after a 17-year-old Kobe signed the deal with Adidas, I, it was in late March. This is how early it was in his senior year, in late March. He turned to Sonny Vaccaro and said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there any way my parents, my family could have had this money and I could have still gone to college? As Vaccaro told me, uh, he started with Felipe Lopez. They were looking for a kid with the it factor who had all this ability and charisma, too. And it was hard for them to find anyone who... The NBA back then, as you well know, was very much a man's game. And the kids were very leery. Now, Sonny also said that Kobe had the biggest balls of all, because he did. He was willing to go. But I, I don't think it's black and white. I think there is doubt in Kobe's mind. It's hard to separate the truth in his fabulous approach to the game. His imagination is everything. So when I was reading that section of Showboat, my first thought was, wow, this guy's timing was great. Then you got to the Felipe Lopez part of it, and I was like, well, maybe he was just great. Do you think Kobe's timing was great, or do you think that no matter when he had come around, he was going to elevate to the level he has? Well, I think Kobe had the desire. He he had the will. That's, in fact, what saved him from the, all of his self-destruction later. But I, 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 Jordan told me Jordan had the perfect time. And, and Jordan told me when I was talking with him, timing is everything. And, of course, he had the great timing. But Kobe's wasn't bad. Um, it would be interesting. Tex Winter always posed to me that the largest difference, and, of course, Tex was Kobe's mentor. He's assistant coach at the Lakers. And as an assistant coach at the Bulls, he coached Michael longer than anybody. And he always said to me that the big difference between the two, they had some physical differences. Michael's hands were a little larger. But Tex said, Michael went to college. He played for Dean Smith in that incredibly tight system. He, you know, he had the character to do that. And Kobe went right from having this alpha male dominating personality where his, where his high school coaches and AAU coaches were just managing his personality. He went right from that to the Los Angeles Lakers. And Tex said he never learned the team game. And it, it was still very hard, even with Jordan's three years of college, for him to compromise a lot of nights in that triangle. And even though Kobe loved the triangle and probably knew it better than any player, he had so many nights, and you've witnessed many of them, I'm sure, David, where he, he just did not have it in him to compromise and share. Well, it's and it was interesting. One of the things was in Salt Lake on his uh, kind of bizarre last year of his tour where when he was kind of talking about running Shaq out openly – Finally, right, and then right. and then basically saying, but if I hadn't won that other championship, you guys would have never given it to me. And so even that was another right about that. That was another. He's right. He probably wouldn't have gotten the credit for it. See, that's even where, even there's where I put the doubtless concept that I've brought up to you. Of <laughs> right, I mean, you ran Shaq out. The two of you could have won. He ran off Phil Jackson, the strongest ego. 
of any NBA coach and the most manipulative guy on the planet. And he, Kobe boxed Phil Jackson out, and you know, Phil was essentially fired. How did he do that? Uh, because he had this unbelievable, almost unbreakable relationship with Jerry Buss. He was the uh, star, the shine in Jerry Buss, the Lakers team owner in Jerry Buss's eye. And Jerry Buss just loved talent. Kobe came there, you know, as Rudy Garcidoyne, the longtime equipment manager of the Lakers, told me, when Kobe came in there, almost 18, he, he had so much talent, so much drive. He worked so hard, and he immediately put this ungodly pressure on all the veterans on the Lakers roster. And, they, you know, he, he was already, uh, you know, a young kid, so he was aloof anyway. But they really disliked him for all the pressure he brought to the to the thing. There was already a ton of pressure with the Lakers anyway because of the presence of Jerry West, who's a maniac about competition. And so it was just, um, it was just that personality. So this is, in, so you have this, you have this force of will to win, but he also has a, I don't know how to say it. Like, on one level, he's got the ability to get some people to follow him, some very incredible people, like a Jerry Buss, to win these little battles along the way. What is it in his personality that allowed well, him... You know, there, there is a distinction there, and uh, I wish I had talked to you for the book, because this is a great conversation. But uh, Kobe always told me, when in 1999, when he was miserable, I was having phone conversations with him, and he told me one night before a game in Houston, he said, I just want to be the man. I, in other words, I just want to totally dominate the league. And I, I know I'm going to get there, but I don't know how. Now, dominating the league is maybe what he did in that last game against Utah. That kind of, you know, it's sort of fuzzy there between winning and dominating and improving his individual prowess and taking a team along with him. And, you know, I think that's also fuzzy for Michael. I think that's been proven. Oh, that's really interesting. Before we get back to Roland, let me tell you a little bit about Indochino. Measured suits fit much better than generic off-the-rack suits. I've got few things, like I've got a you know, backside that has a zip code for all by itself. So for me, it's just unbelievable if I can get a measured suit that fits instead of the generic off the rack, because that's not how I'm not a generic off the rack body, unfortunately. And Indochino does that for us. One of the largest made-to-measure men's brands out there, Indochino.com. And here's how it works. You can go to Indochino.com or drop buy one of their nine North American showrooms, and then you pick from a hundreds of fabrics and patterns, and you can customize it, lapels and pleats and jacket linings and everything, and you then they do the body measurements. You, you think you're all done, you're like, what's going on? And then you go through and they want your arm length and your back of your shoulder length and your waist length and every single element to it, and now you have that generic suit off the rack experience gone because you have a measured suit that fits Perfectly. You kick back, you relax, and then in four weeks, you get an Indochino suit, and you look awesome. Premium Indochino suit for just $389 at Indochino.com. When you enter the promo code LOCKED at checkout, that's 50% off the regularly priced made-to-measure premium suit. Shipping is free. The Indochino promo code locked on any premium suit. It's three eighty nine. You'll. It, it's such a cool thing. I mean, you're just selecting all these different colors and figure out. And they have little little circles at the top, so that if you want to, you can just go. Okay, I want navy blue. See, I need a brown suit right now, so I'm using Indochino.com to get myself a brown kind of khaki suit. That's what I need. So I was able to limit the choices. But boy, at first I was searching and I had so many fun ideas. And I think I'm going to be doing more than that. At three eighty nine, how do you not? Do more than one. Indochino.com, promo code LOCK. Check it out. It is time for you to have a measured suit and a look like you're worth a million bucks from Indochino. Now that you look great, 
Let's go back to Roland on Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Remember to get your team every day. The championships aren't enough? No, they want to obliterate. They, they really want to humiliate in a lot of ways, you know, where they can. Now, maybe Michael had a little more compassion than Kobe. Oh, I'm not sure. I got, to, I got to know Horace Grant a little bit. I'm not sure that he would say that's the case. <laughs> right. I understand because Michael, Michael was much rougher on his teammates. Now, Kobe eventually got that way. You know, beating people in the head with, I mean, you know, a basketball thrown at full speed. Uh, you know, doing any kind of thing. Michael would actually box them up, though. I mean, he'd punch them out. And he intimidated with the physical threat of Michael Jordan. And that was in 95, but it was before that, too. But it was especially the second half, the second chapter of his career when he came back after playing baseball. Michael was, as you know, punched Steve Kerr, but he he just had this tremendous fury, anger over his father's murder and all this stuff. You know, all the rumors and... It didn't take much to set off Michael, but um, there was plenty there at that time. I mentioned at the Open, I want to mention again, Roland wrote the book The Life with Michael Jordan a few years back, which has been given rave reviews. That's available for you. Showboat is the new one uh, involving Kobe. Mind Games was before that, Phil Jackson's long, strange journey. So uh, a lot of these are intertwining right here. As much as we're talking with Roland, because of Showboat, The Life of Kobe, we, we have these other books that are um, kind of intertwined into much of what we're, um, what we're discussing here. So let me jump to Phil, and we'll get back to well. I don't know where we're going to go next. Actually, pretend like I was organized, but let's pretend it's gone now. Uh, why? That's my fault. Why was Phil? Why was Phil able to coach these two when others, Doug Collins, Del Harris, somewhat self-explanatory in certain cases, uh, were, were not? Uh, and how did he? So let's go with how he was able to, and then we'll. I haven't. We'll follow that in a second. Well, uh, you know, first of all, Phil's extremely bright. We have to give him credit for that. I think Michael had run his course. He had really started to become really cynical after all, you know, a variety of coaches and uh, everything he had done and everything he'd been through with the Bulls. He'd come into a team that was loaded with cocaine abusers, and I mean, none of it worked. Uh, uh, not, not at least not in a team sense, and he had all this pressure to win. And Michael was a cynical guy. But Phil had been there as an assistant. He'd studied everything, and he really knew how to build a relationship with a superstar. And Phil could set the hierarchy of a team so that there was no doubt. 1 through 12, 1 through 15, everybody knew exactly where he ranked on the ladder. And there was no question, and it wasn't like it, it wasn't like it was a democracy. Phil had them in order, and and that that helped clear some things up. But the other great value is Tex Winter because Phil ultimately could be the good cop, and Tex Winter, who was uh, a a beloved figure by some, but kind of a Woody Hayes guy, just his passion was off the hook, and Tex wouldn't hesitate coach anybody. I mean, he said he hesitated a little bit because of Jordan's physical prowess, but he never really did. I I, I witnessed their exchanges, and they had sort of a testy relationship, you know, sort of a philosophical clash with those two. Now, and and so that allowed Phil to to come in, and, and then, of course, the other side of it is Michael made it easy for Phil. You know, when they get a guy like Dennis Rodman, everybody said, well, Phil handed, handled Dennis beautifully. No, he didn't. Rodman knew his boundaries because Michael was there, and he Michael was just such a presence. There was a, there was a lot of that done by Michael himself. And so when Phil got to L.A., having those six titles from Chicago and all of these players who were absolutely and completely bewildered about how to win a championship. As Chip Schaefer, the trainer who was with uh, Phil in Chicago and then worked with him in L.A., he said it was 
It was just like E.F. Hutton. All of those Lakers players were just crowded around, hanging on every word that Phil had to say, all of Texas' fundamental drills and things that he did. And the second half of that equation in L.A. was much easier, except for the Shaq Kobe thing that um, the only person who probably could have managed that was Jerry West, and Phil Jackson had chased him off by the time Phil and by the time uh, Shaq and Kobe came flying apart. When Phil does the book stuff and does the kumbaya stuff and the stuff that was somewhat maybe overplayed but somewhat of a signature to Phil, do Kobe and Michael buy it, or do they buy that it's for them, or do they buy that it's helpful to the team? Well, well, Johnny Bach used to get tickled because Phil uh, and Phil adopted a lot of Johnny Bach's practices. Johnny was the guy who was originally weaving scouting tapes into film clips of other things, and then Phil got into that. And it was almost like he went to film school, and suddenly Phil was forcing Johnny Bach out and taking over all that himself. But uh, Johnny Bach used to say, and Johnny was the assistant. An, another of the elderly assistants in Chicago. And Johnny would say Michael would always have this irreverence about Phil's meditation sessions or any of these things. Uh, and he would always, uh, you know, sort of cast uh, a comment or, you know, he'd sort of give a look. And everybody on the team wanted to know what Michael thought of what Phil was doing. So it was always that interplay. And there was irreverence, but there was never disrespect between those two guys. And yet, with Kobe, there seemed at some point in time, Phil felt disrespect. Oh, there was no question that um, Phil came in <clears throat> and sided with Shaq. Shaq had the locker room. He was older. He actually spoke to people. Kobe was. They had no idea who Kobe was. And uh, he was just totally aloof. And uh, once Phil sided with Shaq, it was on, you know. Uh, Tex Winter sided with Kobe. And they had this split, not just within the team, but within the coaching staff. And uh, it was, um, you know, Tex and Kobe did not respect Shaq's work ethic. And uh, Phil, the guy who always had a hierarchy, was not going to place Kobe above Shaq in that hierarchy. And there are not many basketball people who would have. But Tex was always confronting Shaq about this or that, this violation of fundamentals or this lack of attention to the detail that Tex demanded. And so it was always, uh, there was always something boiling up. I was very fortunate in those days because... During the, the Bulls' tenure, about 94, I made fast friends with Tex. And I talked to him on the phone all the time for years, and he would just go through these things ad nauseum. He was thoroughly delighted to be in the middle of all this coaching challenge with this brilliant athletic talent in, in Michael and Kobe, but it always presented huge fundamental issues about the team versus the individual. So if we go back, I, I, I danced around this earlier and probably didn't ask it well enough, so let me ask it again. Oh, you, I probably totally missed it. No, no, that's nice of you, but I don't think so. So Phil sides with Shaq. This is in Showboat. It's very, And yet this is what's interesting to me about Kobe. He wins this battle. And it's really the well, signature yeah. battle. The, the, the signature of his career, in my a little bit of my opinion, is that he does win this battle. But it's interesting because to win this battle, he has to usurp Shaq, who has the locker room, Phil, who's the coach. It's it's interesting that this iconoclast kind of, I don't know if he's a hermit, but just wins this battle to me. Right. Well, you have to think Phil's the smartest guy, supposedly. And yet, he promptly backs himself into a corner with Jerry Buss. And part of the reason Kobe won is that, as Shaq told me himself, he had no relationship with Jerry Buss. They were fighting over money then. Um, there were things about uh, Shaq that Jerry Buss didn't appreciate. Phil and Jerry Buss were not close. And, you know, there was conflict there. You could speculate all day about that. 
Phil did not have the relationship with Jerry Buss he needed. And when you look at the book, the last season that Phil wrote, uh, and the things that he said leading into his getting fired or not getting a new contract, uh, Phil, we, you know, was had all, has always been. Uh, one who's not shy about campaigning publicly about things. And one thing that probably the public doesn't understand, the late Jerry Buss, he seemed amiable, he was a playboy, he, he uh, created his Laker girls, and he was Mr. Poker Player, but he was one really, really tough guy. And so... Um, Kobe gave him an either-or, and, uh, you know, his either-or was more powerful than the either-or that Shaq and Phil posed, and Kobe wasn't afraid. It's like Sonny Vaccaro said, he had the biggest balls of all, and he was fearless, because he was going to do it, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating that two guys who are pretty powerful in basketball Bill Jackson and Shaquille O'Neal were shown the door by Kobe Bryant. But it wasn't just those two. As Sonny Vaccaro said, Kobe was like the Russians with the Romanovs. He got rid of everybody. Well, he, he got rid of his agent, Arne Tellum. Who is the guy that made Kobe a Laker? Right. He got rid of Adidas, his shoe company. He threw his own family out on the eve, the very eve of the 2001 NBA playoffs. They woke up in the morning, the house was sold, their credit cards canceled, their vehicles told, uh, towed, the, the business they worked for shuttered, he, he, yeah, the phone numbers changed. I mean, it was, it was astounding, the swiftness with which Kobe removed his family. And this was a, a beautiful family. People... Uh, um, idealized this family uh, from from Italy when I went there to do the interviews on the Bryants in Italy they were all really sort of mystified and heartbroken that, that this charming Bryant family um, the one the Italians basically love that has been shattered like this by Kobe is he a, when I, I, I was struck by in the last year, all of the articles that were written about him, that he goes to see everyone. There's the great Jackie McMullen story about seeing Michael Jackson. And so he goes to see everybody. But does he have any friends? No, well, he, has, he sort of has media people who he brings into his life for a while. He, he'll have uh, a few associations. Uh, some people have Chip Schaefer, uh, I mean... You know, Chip basically was his trainer uh, or competitive specialist, I think, was the official job <laughs> title. And, uh, you know, Kobe could be very personable. Um, Howard Beck, the NBA writer, uh, Kobe introduced uh, Howard to his, one uh, one day at practice, introduced Howard to his sister and his father. And Howard said, in all the years I've been covering the NBA, I've never had an NBA player do that. And, I mean, Kobe could could be great. I, um, but it wasn't for long. It, it was almost like um, he was friends with a guy he competed with, Donnie Carr, in high school. And they were both, uh, the NBA has this camp for top high school players. They just started it back in the mid-'90s. And they, they were going there, this was before Kobe's senior year, and he's walking in with Donnie the car, and the NBA stipulated that all the players are sort of to develop this brotherhood. They're to visit and be cordial. And Kobe walks in telling him, look, D.C., um, I know we're supposed to be fraternizing and stuff. Don't come to my room. Don't talk to me. I'm here to make myself the number one high school player in America, and I'm not talking to anybody. And so Kobe has relationships to a point, but it, it, he, he almost has a radar sometimes, and, and it'll probably be different after he's now that he's out of the game. But a a uh, 
radar for when a relationship might in any way get in the way of his basketball goals and the drive on where he's going. So you just may have summed it up. This was my take reading Showboat, knowing, having some people who've interacted with Kobe who've, who've kind of relayed the same Howard Beck-esque story about how amazing he's been with their kids or things of that nature, is that I think he knew how, because he was raised well, if that's a value judgment, but go with it, I think he right. knew what he was supposed to do. I just don't think he could do it for very long. No, and, and he sort of knew when the meter was up on that, that, you know, when you form a relationship with people, they come to have expectations. And when you're the, the big figure in that relationship, that can that can that relationship can quickly be weighed down by sandbags. And Kobe just wasn't going to do that. Now, Michael would would have relationships with his bodyguard or his driver, but Kobe couldn't take it that far. He really was um, monumentally aloof. All right, cliche question, but you may be able to answer it better than most with the uh, role Lazen. Uh, Lazenby with us, uh, having written both these books about Jordan and about Kobe. The premier thing, that if you had to, uh, I'm taking you back to fifth grade. I want the triangle into the three squares into the upside down triangle, or the upside right. Remember that, like when you're English teacher. So the right. the the, the simi- biggest similarity between Kobe and Michael, and the biggest difference. Well, I think the biggest similarity is the tremendous will they had. You know, basically Kobe threw everyone out of his life and did himself all this horrible damage. It ruined Tiger Woods. But Kobe had the will and the luck to go with it, but he had this will to recover. And he and Michael have this unbreakable will. And that alone has allowed them to be the competitive figures that they were. Now, the the biggest difference... Well, Michael is really, uh, really obsessed with golf, maybe. But the other big difference is just what Tex said it. Tex Winter said it is that Michael went to college and Kobe did not. And the irony was, and Kobe had got rid of everybody because he felt manipulated by all of them. I, that George Mumford says manipulation leads to alienation, and certainly Phil's the great manipulator. His parents had, <clears throat> and the shoe company had manipulated everything to make it all happen. And he just, you know, he, he got to 22 and he started throwing them out of his life. But I think that the irony is the one thing that maybe gave him a shot to be the greatest would have been if he had gone to college a bit. Hmm. Interesting. That's Tex said. That's what Tex sees as the great difference. And I'll go with that as an answer. I've got to ask it because I was there. It was such an interesting moment. His reaction to it at the time was the sign we all knew he would be great. But the air balls in Salt Lake City in the finals when Eddie Jones and Nick Van Exel are sitting there and Kobe takes the shots anyway and air balls, I believe, three straight shots and the Jazz go on to advance. And then he so calmly sits there when all of us interview him and says, well, you got to miss them before you make them. In... in what role, what, how important were those, or were they not? Was it just part of the road? Well, think of it two things. First, Sonny Vaccaro called him right after that. And Sonny asked him, because Sonny was really close with him, or pretty close because he was the Nike, I mean, the Adidas guy managing everything. And he called uh, Kobe, and Sonny lived in Pacific Palisades, right, you know, not far from the Bryants. They were over there a good bit. And so uh, Sonny called and said, are you okay? And Kirby sort of got his back up and went, what? Why wouldn't I be? And Sonny said, well, the, the air balls, the shots. He said, well, screw them. Nobody else wanted to take them. And then we're, it, literally when you get down to it, he was probably, even though he was a rookie and you know, his play had really, his minutes had been really up and down, he really in that moment was probably the guy to get those shots. Now, I think the thing, when it goes back to Will, I will say this. Jordan, as a freshman, hits the shot. <clears throat> and this goes back to answering the main difference. Jordan, as a freshman, hits the shot for the Tar Heels against Jordan's 
uh, Georgetown to give Dean Smith his first national championship at Carolina. And he is instantly the darling of Tar Heel Nation. And, and as Michael said, uh, timing is everything, and that started him on this perfect time. In what was his freshman year, which was spent in the NBA, Kobe fails the Lakers shooting those air balls. Sonny Vaccaro said there's not another 18-year-old in the world who could have failed the Lakers in that public a fashion and not had it destroy them. So it goes back to this great will. That that just drove the, the mania that Kobe possessed even further. It was like he responded to every sort of challenge in, in um, I mean, just mind-blowing fashion. His will to overcome anything in his way, the damage he did to himself, and with Colorado, he and all the other, and then chasing off Shaq, the 2005 season, he didn't get a single vote for MVP. They end up on this long winning streak that is horrific. Frank Hamblin, the assistant coach, is, is coaching the team. Rudy Tomjanovich drops out. It's just too much insanity and pressure in the middle of the season. And Rudy, a cancer survivor. And the Lakers are terrible. And Kobe stands in the locker room screaming at his teammates that they weren't worthy of sharing the floor with him. And it stalks out. And it is, it was painful to see the damage he had done to himself trying to get this freedom that we, we've discussed. But, um, it's a fascinating story. I haven't, I haven't brought up Colorado in this almost intentionally because I still just don't, I don't even know how to, where to put it. Right. I, I just, I, just like everything else, um, I just tell it frankly. Um, One of the things I found interesting is that the police were interviewing him. And and probably, um, you know, the the settlement in Colorado was a a large settlement. Uh, It should have been uh, tremendous responsibility for Kobe. Forget the fact of rape or not. We won't know that because it was never litigated. But he bears tremendous responsibility for it, and he paid dearly. But, um, you know, he he was being interviewed by the police, and he answers their questions, and they cut off their recorders, and he makes the comment, you know, he should have done as Shaq did. And they reconstruct that comment from memory, and then it later becomes part of the notes, and it's released. And Shaq knows about it for a year, their last year together. It was not public yet. It would not become public until after Shaq left the team. But that itself just damaged relationships far and wide that, uh, for Kobe within the team, within the league. And uh, another thing from which he managed to recover. And, of course, he had luck. Um, he had, he, had, he went on from there to just about destroy his relationship with Jerry Buff. And yet Phil Jackson had returned to coach, had agreed to do that, and then the Lakers get Al Gasol. And that is the good fortune. Kobe gets the help he needs to... And he becomes a figure in the Olympics. He wins two titles. Um, he wins the league MVP. Um, all, all the things that happen. And so it, it, to have done himself that much damage, to have created that much wreckage in his life and career, it's a pretty amazing turnaround. And Pal Gasol, the intellectual that he is, may have been his greatest gift because Gasol... Under, got it, like, in a way that maybe nobody ever else got it with Kobe. Right, and I don't think Powell was needy in the way a lot of players are. He just had a game that fit perfectly with uh And it's very hard to, you know, it's just very hard to, to fit in around a guy that takes all the air out of the environment. Like That's a great way to say it. 
that's a great way to say it. Yeah, you, you, there's no oxygen left if you're in the room with Kobe. Right. Uh, the competitive environment is just void. And Jordan, in his early days, and he could later, but really in his early days, he could, he could do the same thing. He could just asphyxiate the team. So there's two books out there for everybody, Showboat and My Life, Kobe's Showboat, and My Life is Jordan. Roland, is there anything, before I'm going I'm to, for our Utah, I have a huge percentage of the audience that's from Utah as the radio voice of the jazz, so I'm going to throw a little surprise here at the end of this conversation that you are aware of. Uh, but I, is there anything about those two, these two books that people have that you want to add in uh, here, you know, kind of giving you your pitch to say, hey, this is the other reason you should go grab them? Well, you know, you've been very kind to me. I sort of leave that kind of stuff to the readers. Michael Jordan, the life's in 13 languages. I've been very fortunate. It sells and sells. And Kobe's going to be in seven or eight. It may end up in 13 by the time. But um, there's a global fascination with both of these guys. So in 1998, you snuck out a little book. And a little, I don't mean that, but it was short. I think it was 100 pages, and uh, it was called Stockton to Malone, The Rise of the Utah Jazz, the jazz fans out there, um, and it's stunning to start realizing that this was, you know, 20-plus years ago. I mean, unless you're, unless you're 45 years old, um, your memories of Stockton and Malone, you don't have the early years anymore. Uh, it's amazing how fast time goes. What's your memory of that work that you did uh, with Stockton, Malone, and Jerry, obviously largely involved in that as well? Well, I, um, I I just, like a lot of people in the NBA, I just had so much admiration for Jerry Sloan. What a, what a competitive standard. And, you know, the guy told and I've coached a fair amount of basketball, and the guy told me something. He said, you know, uh, the game's simple if you can go out there and lay your heart on the line every night. And... Um, just the story of his life and to listen to the various people talk about Jerry Sloan. People may not know that before Michael Jordan was Mr. Chicago Bull, Jerry Sloan was Mr. Chicago Bull. And not in the sense of tremendous talent, just in the sense of uh, unbending grit and desire and just the ever readiness to compete. And if there were ever two players to match a coach's competitive mindset, um, Stockton and Malone, guys who never took any time off, who, uh, I mean, it's, it's just incredible. You know, we, that age of basketball is gone forever. We don't have this guy. No, I mean, we've had guys like Kobe who have fought through, and obviously he, he I, I think Kobe learned a lot from those guys. I think everyone who played basketball did. But the age has changed. People change teams. They, they run away from challenges, uh, and, and that's not a slam at any one player. I, it's just what everyone does. It's, uh, they have more freedom and power than they've ever had. But I'm just not sure that Stockton alone, no matter how much power and freedom you gave them, if, if they would shirk the deed, would walk away from that task. I know Malone finally did, but it was very late, and he had certainly, uh, those guys had just been unbelievable. And so it was just sort of a look at, you know, and I write these six, seven hundred page books today, so to have a hundred page, almost a pamphlet on those <laughs> guys. But uh, it, it really was just a look at, uh, it was a look at who Sloan was back in the, the gritty 60s and 70s. Um, my, one of my favorite quotes of all time, Johnny Red Kerr, who later became a broadcaster in Chicago, he was with the... Uh, Old Baltimore Bullets, he was Sloan's uh, uh, roommate on the road. And, you know, he would go out and have beers afterward, and he'd come back, and Sloan would be sitting over there smoking cigarettes in the dark, just 
ripped apart by the game you just played, you know, just so intense about everything. It just never, never backed down from any of it. Just a guy, you know, um, I, I just don't think they, they make Jerry, uh, could make another Jerry Sloan. Well, I, I, you know, I was so fortunate to be around him a lot. The, the telling story to me about Jerry, just kind of to understand, you know, I mean, there's, gosh, I don't know, there's so million, I don't know why I would say this is the telling story, but just kind of to the, who he is and the core of who he was, is one of the big challenges of Jerry's career, obviously, early was, um, you know, you know, it, it, like, well, first you have the whole Evansville and the plane flight. No, I mean, there's just so much. Right, right. Oh, so many things. Right. But, but I, I even just go back to that he grew up, and when he first had access to food with regularity, they had a problem with him because he ate too much. Because at no point in his life did he ever know that he was having another full table worth of food. And so he would just eat, and if it was still there, he would just keep eating and then it started to impact him negatively. I mean, that, you know, I don't know why that just, but it's somehow to the core of who Jerry is and the fact that to his final days in the NBA, he still always took the free media room food. Like it was there, you take it. Like, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of how down to earth he truly was and how he, I, I guess my point, I guess, would be that that's what he came from and then that he never changed out of that. Right. Right. Those guys, uh, Tex Winter was the same way with the press meal. And he'd come out of the depression and all of that. So, well, they're great. They're great characters. The competitor, those huge hands, and and just the way he and Norm Van Leer played in that Chicago backcourt, unbelievable. Yeah, I missed. I was never fortunate enough to get to see him play. I've just had everyone who's ever been around me. That's the first story they want to tell me about Jerry is the insane yeah. toughness he brought to the yeah. to the game. Well, Roland, uh, just terrific work uh, on Showboat, terrific work on my life. Um, and really, I, th- I thought you uh, – I've always been kind of a Jordan freak. Um, and, you know, one of the, I, I was covering the 97-98 finals and got to have dinner with David, the late, great David Halberstam uh, when he was working on that book. What a great man. Oh, just – yes. Uh, and has written some, you know, probably what four of my favorite ten books in the world. Um, right. You know, just uh, and so he I thought. Became a sports writer after reading the breaks of the gate. Right. The, which is one of those four. I was a high school wrestling coach and read that book and became a sports. Oh, really? That's a great story. <laughs> uh, but I thought you really, I thought you did a fabulous job with my life and f- kind of you. the next version of that showboat. I think you're you're probably cutting the cord uh, or you know. Uh, blazing the trail a little bit more than some others. So uh, congratulations on these. I hope everyone enjoys them and they go to Amazon and they grab them. Uh, if you, you know, I'm sure you can search if you need to uh, showboat or my life, but Roland's last name is L-A-Z-E-N-B-Y. So go grab that. Uh, Roland, I really appreciate Twitter at Lazenby. And, and you, and you have some epic runs there, my friend. Every now and then, when the bird gets in your saddle, and I see that like one slash eleven coming, I'm fired up for what's about to happen. Right, I, I I haven't done that in a while. Sometimes I get in trouble, so I I sort of watch. But yeah, no, there are things that um, you know, but it's it's probably best for me to save it for my book work. I don't know. Well, Roland, I really you've been really kind. Oh. Well, appreciate it. I love the history of the game. Thanks so much for the time on Locked on NBA. Greatly appreciate it and uh, look forward to whatever your next, the next one that uh, comes across. I don't know who our next Kobe is. Uh, it's probably LeBron, but I, uh, he, he's unique in his own way and maybe in some ways even a more remarkable, um, story well, considering wh- what he's, how he grew up and what he's been able to overcome and frankly being the first athlete of the Twitter sphere and social networking to really have only had one misstep in his career is rather remarkable. Well, I will tell you that uh, when I started, one of my first phone calls is going to be to you because you have some great stories. Uh, I don't. I, I, that's nice of you. I think you're being generous, Roland. Thank no, you very much no, for the. I'm just, just calling. Hey, thanks, man. Thank you very much. Big thanks to Roland Lazenby, and make sure that you go to athletescollective.com. Use the promo code LOCK to get fifteen percent off. And the Locked On Podcast Network has your team waiting for you. Your team every day.
Progressive brings you Flowetry with flow. When flow flows, she flows in the know. Mind ruminates the rates. Shown them all, I heed the call. Seeing the rest, I choose the best. Sometimes it's ours, sometimes it's not. When the fox walks, is it called a fox trot? That's a real question. Compare Progressive Direct rates with competitors' rates. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.